Welcome to the Watermark Equipping Podcast, a conversation about faith seeking understanding from Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. Your hosts are Dr. Orrin Martin, the Senior Director of Equipping here at Watermark. Howdy, y'all. And me, Caitlin Van Wagner. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey, team, welcome back. And Orrin. I am predicting that this is going to be one of your favorite episodes. It's going to be so much fun. Because a lot of your worlds are colliding today, and we'll get to that in a bit, about what that means. But the general premise on this episode of today's uh, Watermark Equipping podcast, we are going to be talking about the story of the Old Testament, how all the parts and pieces fit together, um, and why that matters to us personally today as Christians. And to do that, today, Orrin and I are joined by Danny Stoll from the Watermark Institute. Welcome, Danny. Hey, guys. Hi. We're so glad to have you, Danny. Give us a couple of sentences on um, who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing this year hanging out in the Watermark Institute. Absolutely. I am Danny Stoll. Happy to be here. I'm from Richardson, Texas, and I graduated from Baylor this past May and have been a part of the Watermark Institute as a resident since August, where I serve on the high school ministry team here called Storyline. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to be here. So, Oren, yes. tell us why Danny here is specifically here to talk to us about the story of the Old Testament and how a lot of your worlds are colliding. So, yes. what's the what's the backstory about why specifically Danny is here? Yeah, so Danny is a part of our Watermark Institute, which is our one-year ministry residency program for people who may be exploring the idea of vocational ministry or who maybe just want to take a kind of gap year to be better biblically and theologically trained. And at the end of each semester, we have what is called a stand and deliver that every student does. And it's basically an oral exam uh, where they memorize a ton of scripture. They uh, kind of walk through the storyline of scripture from memory uh, and how it points to Christ and a bunch of other stuff that they, that they work on. And Danny did such a great job. Wonderful, joyful, amazing, passionate, loved it. We asked her to come here. And a stand, the stand and deliver for the fall is yes. specifically over what topic? That's right. So you're walking through the storyline of the Old Testament and showing kind of the major plot movements as God moves history along towards his redemptive purposes in Christ. And so we're about to hear what Danny delivered from memory yeah. in front of just a few dozen of her friends um, and family members um, at her fall stand and deliver. So just a few months ago about the story of the Old Testament, um, which is pretty amazing. I've said in so many stand and delivers as I've had residents and as a staff member, I, residents and fellows on my team, I get to go and listen. And it is incredible just to hear the amount of scripture and the story of scripture put together. So Danny, we've heard tell that yours was excellent. And so you're going to come and talk to us in a bit about the story of the Old Testament as you learned it in the fall. Thanks so much. I'm excited to do it. And I think you mentioned this, Oren, but the reason your worlds are colliding is because in addition to leading our equipping ministry, you also teach at the Watermark Institute. That is correct. And so you're equipping people. You're doing the Institute. Yeah. You're on the podcast. It's all together. This is I why I think it's going to be your best episode ever. I I hope so. Okay. I agree. Time will tell. All right. So, Danny, before we get to you, I'm just about to hand it over to you in a bit. Oren, why don't you orient us a little bit about why it's important as modern-day believers— to learn and study the Old Testament, I've heard. Uh, here's a here's a phrase I've heard. I've heard more. I'm more of a I'm more of a New Testament Christian. I like the God of the New Testament. I prefer prefer learning specifically about Jesus in the New Testament. I don't really understand the Old Testament. That God seems seems harsh. I don't get how it applies. So, talk us to us a little bit about why Christians should care about the story of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first I would begin by saying well, it was kind of important to let's say, people like Jesus, if you ever heard of him from the New Testament. Heard of him. Yep. Uh, he's pretty fantastic. And uh, and also the New Testament writers. I mean, we we don't understand the, the depth and the fullness and the glory 
of the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. Uh, you might think of it, one of my favorite quotes is by B.B. Warfield, and he says, the Old Testament is a richly furnished room dimly lit. And what he means by that is all the furniture's there, uh, but, but what we lack is light. And, you know, the Old Testament, we have people like Adam and Abraham and Israel and Moses and David, and we have uh, institutions like the temple and the sacrificial system. And when Jesus uh, comes as the long-awaited Messiah, Scripture tells, tells us in the New Testament that he is the second Adam, the life-giving, uh, the better Adam, the one who obeyed in a lot of Adam's failure. He's the better Israel. He is the better David. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have all of this rich depth and background the Old Testament gives us so that when Jesus comes, we see just how marvelous and wonderful a Savior he is. One of my favorite quotes is by Augustine, and he says, although the Old Testament is prior in time, the New Testament has precedence in intrinsic value. Now, he doesn't mean that the New Testament's really, really, really God's Word, but the Old Testament's not. He just means that the Old Testament acts as herald to the New. In other words, the Old Testament is full of promises, and the New Testament tells us that God keeps his promises in Christ. The mystery that was concealed, as, as Paul says in Colossians 1, has now been revealed in Christ. The Old Testament paves the way for Christ so that we have a much better, uh, deeper, glorious view of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us and for our salvation. What are some other misconceptions people have about the Old Testament What that keep them back from really diving deep? I would say, you know, maybe we read the Old Testament just as a bunch of kind of moral examples like, hey, be like David, like go fight your Goliaths and whatever your whatever those five stones are, like the stones of faith and hope and love and whatever it is. Uh, or, you know, uh, d- don't, don't be like wh- whoever, right? Whatever bad examples in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- don't disobey like Adam did, right? You're going to get in trouble. Uh, and, and so, you know, to read them as mere examples to either follow or not follow misses the point. Uh, or maybe, uh, you know, we think about Jesus and his indictment on the Pharisees and think of places like John chapter 5 where, I mean, the Pharisees and, and his opponents knew the Old Testament, quote-unquote, knew the Old Testament, uh, perhaps better than anybody else. But what did Jesus say to them? He actually says, um, <laughs> you, his voice, God's voice, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. How can Jesus say that to people who probably have the Old Testament memorized or at least significant portions of it? And it's because they failed to see in the Old Testament Jesus and, and the, 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 the preparation and, and all of the, the, uh, the things that Jesus came to do. Now, technically, he wasn't in the Old Testament, but it points to him, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not just mere examples. Uh, if we fail to read the Old Testament and not see God's great plan of salvation, how he prepared the way for Jesus to come. Awesome. All right. Danny, it's that time. I'm going to turn it over to you. It's great. So, Danny, will you walk us through the whole story of the Old Testament? Absolutely. Happy to. First, I wanted to start by reading John 1, just the first couple verses. So, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and with Him was not anything made that was made. And so, I read this really just because um, we have to understand that the Word is Jesus, and He's been a part of this story from eternity eternity past. And it's important to read the story of the Old Testament, just like Oren was saying, in the light of Jesus, knowing that Jesus has come. So we begin this story in Genesis, where by the work of the triune God, he creates the heavens and the earth and calls it good. He creates mankind and he calls it very good. And as God created Adam and Eve in the very image of himself, 
they lived in harmony with him. They were given dominion over the earth and sea and were charged with the command to be fruitful and multiply. And they were told to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so they were living in a perfect universe, abiding in his presence as God intended to be until they weren't. So in Genesis 3, we see the serpent deceive Adam and Eve. He tempts them he tempts Eve to tell her to eat of the one tree that God said not to eat from. So being under Satan's influence, Adam and Eve violated the one command from God and ate of this tree. Since they rebelled against God, they were casted out of the garden, and we see sin enter the world for the first time to disrupt this harmony that had previously existed. So any evil that we can experience this day uh, can be traced back to this moment, better known as the fall of man. But God In his mercy, he was with Adam and Eve. He met them where they were at in their sin and shame, in their nakedness, and he covered them with animal skins. And so this just points us to Jesus in how we will receive a greater covering of sin. So even in this moment of darkness, the perfect harmony of the world being disrupted by sin, God speaks a better word. We're left with a remnant of hope through the promise of Genesis 3.15, where God tells us that through Eve's seed, will come the one to crush the head of the serpent. This sets us up to look forward to the promise of the coming and conquering son who will ultimately defeat the enemy. So as man was being obedient to charge in their command to multiply in number, so did their sin. And God was grieved by this, by grieved by their sin. So because of this corruption, judgment for sin was necessary. God wipes out all of humanity by a flood, but through a man with a righteous relationship with God, Noah, we again see the preservation of God's people through the ark that Noah builds. God promises to never flood the entire earth again, and this would be the Noahic covenant. Noah points us to the one, Jesus, again, who will preserve man's life eternally. So after the flood, God gave a command to spread out and populate, but through direct disobedience of this command, man stays in one place and builds the Tower of Babel. This tower is about self-sufficiency apart from God. They wanted to build a tower to make a name for themselves. And so it truly was an act of God's grace that they were dispersed and separated into different nations. And out of one of these nations, God calls Abram to go to a land in order to make a great nation out out of him. God is always in the business of bringing about a redemptive plan for mankind. And he does this primarily by choosing Abraham to make a covenant with him that will consist of land, seed, and blessing. And This covenant will form the basis of a relationship between God and his people in Israel. So uh, we see that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, gave birth to their first son in their old age named Isaac. And God's promises to Abraham are also confirmed with Isaac. Abraham is tested for his faith and is obedient when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son. At the last minute, God calls out to Abraham and provides a ram in the thicket as a substitute for Isaac. In this moment, we see God was with Abraham. This points us to a greater substitute of a lamb sacrifice from father to son. So from Isaac's family comes Jacob, where Abraham's promises are also confirmed with him. Jacob has 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And two people to note here are Judah and Joseph. We see the line, the lineage of Jesus born through Judah, which is one of his sons. And then with Joseph, he was actually the favored brother. And his brothers were jealous of him because of that. And actually sold him into slavery. And so Joseph's story teaches us that what his brothers intended for evil, God actually uses for good because Joseph eventually rises to be a great leader in Egypt. He helps Egypt in the upcoming trouble they face and restores relationships with his brothers as he provides food for them during a famine. So as we approach Exodus, we now see Jacob has brought their family to Egypt and now arose a pharaoh, a king, who did not know Joseph. The pharaoh king over Egypt wanted to oppress the people of Israel 
for being uh, what he thought was too mighty and too many. But in light of this oppression, God, again, was with his people and Pharaoh could not stop them from multiplying. Uh, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So we see the people in Egypt, they are now in slavery for the next 400 years. And as Israel cried out in oppression, God intensified his awareness with his people. He reveals himself to Moses at a burning bush, saying that he is the I am, revealing his personal name, his covenant name as Yahweh. God commissions Moses to deliver his people from affliction in Egypt and essentially brings them to the promised land or to bring them to the promised land, which is a land of flowing with milk and honey, which would then be a fulfillment of Abraham's covenant of land. Moses approaches Pharaoh to release Israel from slavery and Pharaoh in his hard heart continually refuses refuses to let them go. And so in his refusal, 10 plagues are sent uh, in order to get Pharaoh to repent. And the last one, the last plague is to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And in order for death to pass over them, the angel of death to pass over them, the people of Israel had to kill an unblemished lamb um, and mark the blood of this lamb over their house so that their lives would be spared. And this just points us to, again, a greater Passover where a greater sacrifice of an unblemished lamb, the lamb of God, will pass over our death by the shedding of his blood in order to spare our lives. Pharaoh eventually lets the Israelites leave Egypt, but as the Israelites continue to make their way over to the promised land, he eventually just changes his mind and the Egyptians ended up falling after them. Pharaoh sends them out to go after them and What we see here is God sovereignly part the Red Sea to redeem the Israelites from slavery. He's miraculously carrying Israel through uh, the Red Sea while he's also closing up the sea and drowning the Egyptians after them. And so with God, we see that his grace always precedes his commands. After a gracious redemption, we see a gracious revelation. The Lord brings Moses to Mount Sinai and reveals his law to him, making a covenant with Moses. This essentially would be would serve as a blueprint for how they should properly worship God and how they can live in peace with God's presence in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where the presence of God dwells, showing us the significance of God's desire to be with his people. And so while Moses is actually at Mount Sinai receiving the law, the covenant is breached. Israel down below is building a golden calf, which was a, a sign of uh, pagan worship, pagan idolatry while they can literally see God's presence in the distance. And so again, we just see, we're shown the fickleness of humanity, that even though God wants to be with his people, our sin gets in the way. And so the end of Exodus, we're just left with the problem. Even Moses, the one who constructed this tent of meeting, cannot enter the tent. So we look to the book of Leviticus to consider how the Lord is able to maintain his presence with his people. In Leviticus, we see Israel's call to be a holy nation, to be set apart. But again, we see this paradox because of their sinfulness and God's holiness, they still could not be in the presence of God. So their sin had to be dealt with. God is graciously providing a way through priestly laws and practices, such as the Day of Atonement. This plays a a role in shaping the religious framework for the Israelites to properly worship and walk with God. This points us to Jesus, who will be the greater high priest and not only provide a better atonement for our sin, but actually is our atonement. So what was told to us in Leviticus, we see in numbers that it worked. Moses is now in the tent of meeting and Moses is continuing to lead his people, to lead Israel into the wilderness. The people are grumbling and complaining. They actually begin to ask to go back to Egypt. They're forgetting that God had sovereignly delivered them from slavery and they're doubting that he would even take them to the land that he had promised. And so right when Israel is on the edge of the promised land, 12 spies are sent to give a report on the promised land. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, are the ones that trusted trusted God in his promises and exhorted the people to go into the land. Every other spy doubted, which then caused everyone else to doubt. And so because of this rebellion, they 
actually would not then be able to enter the promised land. Only their descendants would get to enter the promised land. And Moses too, because of a lack of trust in God, would be permitted from taking Israel into the promised land. So now because of this, we enter 40 years of wandering where the old generation has to die off because of their consequence. And we're waiting for the next generation to rise up to prepare to enter into the promised land. So as they're preparing to do this, Moses delivers the law a second time. And he is recalling the law with a passionate heart urging Israel to remain faithful to God's covenants through three different sermons. So we leave Deuteronomy seeing that Jesus will be the better prophet, but also the, the better Moses. After the commission of Moses, the torch is passed on to Joshua, and he ultimately leads them into the promised land, which this was huge. This was a fulfilled promise of God to Abraham um, of this land, and they only have this great success only because God was with them all along. All of this land would then be conquered um, and w- would be allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. So now we also see the fulfillment of seed in Judges. The family tree is growing rapidly, but again, their sin is drastically increasing. And this was because after the conquest of the land, they were given a command to drive out the people of Canaan to preserve the purity of worship between God and the people of Israel. But the Israelites failed to do so. So we entered a really dark, dark time. Uh, There are cycles of sin. There's periods of disobedience. But... God, again, was with them, and he gave them what they did not deserve. He would raise up judges to deliver them from their sin. And this just reveals to us a deep need for enduring leadership and a better judge to come and deliver us from our sin, which, surprise, would be Jesus. Israel at this time had no king, hence the judges, but because Israel wanted to be like other nations, they asked the last judge, Samuel, to give them a king. And as Samuel seeks guidance on this, God warns Israel about acting on their own, but ultimately lets them proceed. Uh, Samuel anoints Saul, Israel's first king, who by the people's standards was great, but Saul actually had no heart for the Lord. We see him perform unlawful sacrifices and acts uh, in foolishness time and time again. God actually regrets him being king, and Samuel looks for another king to be anointed. So the fall of Saul's kingship brings us to the rise of David's kingship. And one thing to note here is David's anointing happened while David was still a young shepherd in Bethlehem. But as he ascended the throne, we then see God make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where he promises a house, a kingdom, and a throne, essentially promising that through the line of David will come one to sit on the throne forever. Shortly after, we too see that David is not perfect. Uh, David finds himself in the tragic sin of adultery with Bathsheba that eventually led to murder. He would suffer consequence from this, but uh, what sets David apart as a king was that was his repentance over his sin, that he was repentant over his sin, he grieved his sin, and this is actually what earned him um, a title as a man after God's own heart. And so we get to the end of 2 Samuel, David is singing a song of deliverance, God's faithfulness, and how he wanted to build a temple for God. And so David's life points us to the one who will be the better David, Jesus, the ultimate king and the ultimate shepherd. So we're still following the promise that through David's line will come a king. So David's son in the in the kings, Solomon will follow David on the throne. Uh, Solomon asked for wisdom. He ends up being uh, building the temple that David originally wanted to build. And this temple would again be a sign of God's presence with them in the promised land. So considering Solomon wrote majority of the wisdom books, it may serve as a, a little bit of a shocking note that Solomon actually drifts away from the Lord and um, drifts into making unwise decisions, such as marrying the wives of other kings and other nations and bringing into their practice of, of pagan worship. And his son, Rehoboam, who were to follow his steps as king, Rehoboam also walks in folly, choosing to listen to unwise authority and under his leadership because of all this, this disobedience, the kings are just taking them further and further away from God. And so now we see the kingdom actually divide in two, uh, the northern kingdom to be the Israel and the southern kingdom to be Judah. 
Both kingdoms were led by many unfaithful and unrighteous leaders. Uh, and this division brought upon a civil war. Tension was really high. The temple is destroyed. And this period tension ends up uh, leading us to a fall of Israel, falling to Assyria, and then the fall of Judah, falling to Babylon, putting them in exile. So in the midst of this division, we see the Lord leaving a remnant through the southern kingdom of Judah, as it only had a few, quote unquote, good kings, um, which we will there then see the line of Jesus come from it. So we leave the kings with a revealing great need for a perfect king who will rule with ultimate wisdom. During the decline of the kingdom and the exile, God was still with them. Uh, he was sending messages all along through the major and minor prophets, constantly pleading with Israel for them to repent from their sin that they were living in and to return to God. God was trying to warn them of the corruption that would happen to Israel. But even in this warning, Israel did not listen. And so there's a twin message of prophetic warning and messianic hope where we now uh, still look to Jesus's return. So after 70 years, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. The king of Persia brings the people back from Israel to rebuild the temple that was destroyed during exile. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah is commissioned um, to rebuild the walls. And Ezra teaches the law to the people. And you would think that all is well now. All is rebuilt. Uh, but it just wasn't. Uh, there was a deeper spiritual restoration that was necessary. And they would wait for this to happen for 400 years, which this would better be known as the silence period. So thankfully, something transformative beyond the law came to us. A God who made a covenant with Abraham, Noah, Moses, David brought forth a new covenant. This long-awaited Messiah fulfills a new covenant through himself, prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that tells us that this new covenant, will, we will be given a new heart, a new spirit. We'll be, we will receive his Holy Spirit to dwell with us. We will be changed from the inside out. And this covenant will be written on our hearts and no longer on tablets of stone. Jesus fulfills this covenant by his life, death, and resurrection. And he does this by coming down to the level of creature, assuming humanity to be with us. Uh, and this ultimately is his redemptive plan for humanity. And so a God who had been throughout the Old Testament setting up his throne in our hearts in order to dethrone all of our idols chose to make his dwelling place with humanity. And so he makes us his place of dwelling, creating a better tabernacle, better temple, and ultimately a better covenant. So he is a God of covenant, a God of presence, one who just longs to be with us eternally. Um, and this is the God of John 1, who eternally had been with us, articulating this miraculous plan, and is the one God who is worthy of our worship. Wow. That was amazing. That was incredible, Danny. Danny. great job. Good job. Ooh. Now you can see why she was chosen for this. <gasps> oh, God. I now see it. <laughs> I love, Danny. that was excellent. Thank I you, I love guys. that you started and ended with John 1. Yeah. And I, I mean, I said this before, but I've sat through several of these, and I always learn or pick up or just appreciate something anew. It like gives, it almost makes me emotional to be like, oh my gosh, this is a, an incredible story that makes me long for the arrival for Christ. Mm. And also just like to see yourself in the story, right? Like, so I wrote down like just the reminder that you had this like repeated cadence of what Jesus is. is he's a better, Christ is our better. And I wrote down, you you woven that he is our better word, our better sacrifice, our better temple, our better judge, our better king. Mm -hmm. And that is like such a, an incredible reminder of all of these snapshots of Jesus that we see. It kind of sounds yeah. like the book of Hebrews. <gasps> mm -hmm. It does. Amazing. Reading Hebrews. Um, well, Great. incredible. That was so good, Danny. So I want to I wanna ask both Danny, you and Oren, as you study the Old Testament, how has that personally changed your faith? So, Danny, this is fresh for you. Um, I'm sure you've read the Old Testament before, but you're just a month or two after kind of finishing yeah, your yeah. your Old Testament 
kind of study. How has this changed the way you read the Bible, the way you think about God, your relationship with Christ? Hold yeah. on, though. I saw you make eyes with Caitlin. Had you read the whole Old Testament I before actually, the Institute? I actually had not. So in my, in my Sin and Deliver, I mentioned that. I was like, this has been the first time that I read the Old Testament all the way through. And that's like what actually made me emotional because it like made it make sense for mm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's even like what I talk about is studying the Old Testament, now approaching the New Testament, like— I think I, I remember just like saying this phrase like once once I saw it like I, I it was impossible for me to unsee it mm-hmm. um, that this is a story that is all meant to point to Jesus and so um, I think even personally for me like I was just able to see like the transcendent God uh, that this that this God that I would read about like I probably was the person that was the quote unquote only New Testament girl or whatever I call myself too <laughs> right. <laughs> But I think I just saw, I really truly saw like the, the transcendent God, the one who had been the same God from eternity past, who is simultaneously mindful of me uh, and mindful of man. And I was just given a deeper awareness of the gift that it is to one, know Jesus, that the whole the whole Bible, like cover to cover, is meant to point to me to Jesus um, and ultimately reveals to me that he has come to me and that we now get the gift of being the better tabernacle and walking with him and that he chose to make humanity his dwelling place. And so I think it just it really encapsulated just a a better picture of Jesus and think specifically of how it's impacted my faith. I think primarily it's it's expanded my view of God and my intimacy with him. Um, I think I now more deeply see the gift of him being with me and that my habit of heart is now, I think, just praying to really understand and like long to dwell with God and to gaze upon his beauty because you see it from cover to cover, from Old Testament mm-hmm. to New Testament. And I think it's just allowed me to have a better grasp and a, and a deeper delight in the gospel. And like I said, just ultimately it's painted a better picture of Jesus, why he had come, why I individually need him. Um, and I think ultimately it's just, it's stirred my affections for the Lord because I'm seeing him, I'm seeing him and the story of Jesus complete, like more clearly than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. So. That's so good. That's very encouraging. Lauren, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm always struck by, and I was just struck again as Danny was walking through it, just that, that God not only makes promises, but he actually keeps them. And you think about, you know, I make promises to my kids all the time, and sometimes I have to break them, you know? I mean, I hate to say that as a dad, but, you know, I say to my kids, hey, well, I'm going to take you to the park next week. Well, a tornado rolls in or bad weather, and you can't, right? So for things outside of my control, you have to break them. Not so with God, right? He not only made promises like Genesis 3.15, like Danny said, that an offspring will come who will crush the head of the serpent, but think about all of the human obstacles that took place from that moment Thousands of years until Jesus came. And it, it, so it shows us God's power. It shows us God's grace. It shows us God's mercy and patience, how patient he was time after time after time. And and yet he fulfills his promises. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So one of the funny things that happens every time, and it happened to me just now while I was watching Danny deliver, essentially, but it happens in a stand and deliver. I see the person who's giving the stand and deliver, and I'm almost jealous because they just got to spend a couple of months deeply understanding the Old Testament. So, Oren, for someone out here who's like, I want to be able to know the Old Testament like Danny knows it, where would you tell them to start? How would you start to, if they didn't have the luxury of the Watermark Institute, which is a lot of work, by the way. Luxury is a little bit of a misnomer. It's a ton of work. Danny didn't just, you know, roll out of bed and do this. She studied very a lot. Um, But— if you are a busy mom, if you are a dad trying to juggle 
work and family or a young adult with a really busy schedule, how could you start to study the old, approach the Old Testament to be able to write it on the heart, their heart, just like Danny did? Yeah. So are you asking like resources I would recommend? Yeah, resources you'd recommend yeah. or just where would you start? Yeah. W- one resource would be, of course, the Watermark Institute. So if you're interested. If you want to take, yeah, a year. Yeah, it'll yes. take a year. You, you can apply for the Watermark Institute, and we walk through every book of the Old Testament and every book of the New Testament and all kinds of theology and all kinds of fun things, and you'll get that. If you can't do that, we understand. Not everybody can. But, you know, I, I would first say read and reread Scripture like crazy. Uh, I've said that to so many people over the years. And, you know, I, th- I think the more you become familiar and not just like, I think it'll become kind of easy to get stuck down in the weeds uh, because there's some, let's just all acknowledge it. There's there's all kinds of strange things in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. That are that seem really distant from us, right? There's differences in language, differences in history. You know, thousands of years ago, cultural differences, differences in genre or, or literary forms, like you know, prophecy and poetry, and you know, all kinds of different stuff. So, you know, I would say, um, you know, one of my favorite children's uh, Bibles is by David Helm called God's Big Picture. And I actually encourage new Christians who have never read the Bible before to read that. I read that to my kids literally hundreds of times. And it basically just traces the theme of the kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule or reign through Genesis, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And then there's other great books like, I would say, Vaughn Roberts has one called God's Big Picture as well. It's a great book that kind of goes through the theme of the kingdom. Um, if, if I can, I, I'll recommend a great book by... Uh, Jason Derushi and Andrew Nacelli, and actually, I happened to write it with them called 40 Questions About Biblical Theology." You happened to write it with them, yes, you just and it's good it? because wow. of what they said. It's not sure. good because of what I said, but sure. but we actually this is the whole point of the book is helping us read all of Scripture in light of Christ. How to read the Old Testament as Christians because it's it's our it's it's written for us too. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the book? Uh, 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. Awesome. And it so, answers all kinds of different questions, but it also makes it very practical. How does it matter to the Christian life? How do we teach this in our churches? Awesome. So we'll put links to all of those um, resources in the show notes. So, Oren, let's say somebody does potentially want to pursue vocational ministry and they want to apply for the Watermark Institute. Where yeah. would they find out more information? Yeah, we well, can go to watermark.org backslash institute. And uh, we... Uh, usually have an application process around Christmas time, and then in the spring is spent kind of doing interviews and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff that then begins in the fall. So if you're interested in that, we would love to to consider you. And uh, it is it is so much fun. It's it's the best part of my job, is getting to walk through the story of the Bible and how we see Christ from beginning to end. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, was I right? Was this one of your favorite? Yes. Episodes I am so. Happy. I could talk for 30 more minutes. I know you can. But we can't. We know. (laughs) Danny, thank you so much. Yes. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank y'all. And thank y'all for joining us. Talk to you next time. Well, that's all for us today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And until next time, have a great week of worship. 